Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. All right, fans, the Super Bowl is here now, and you can get in on all the action at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Bucks and Chiefs, Tampa Bay, the first team in history to play for the title at their home field, is currently a three-and-a-half-point underdog. They're going to take on Kansas City, who's looking now for back-to-back titles. BetOnline has hundreds of props on this game, including game MVP, margin of victory, even the length of the national anthem. Always available online or on your mobile device. Go ahead and visit BetOnline today. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Major League Beginnings. I'm Mike, along with Mark. And on this episode, we're joined by glove-flapping, fun-loving, 16-year Major League vet and current broadcaster, Ryan Dempster. What a story for Ryan Dempster. And having him, Mike, really resonates with me. Because when you walk in the room and Ryan Dempster's in there, you are going to leave laughing. Your cheek's going to hurt. And this is a guy that has such a great personality, but he had an intensity on the mound that took him from being a starter to a reliever. And he flourished in that and ended up with a World Series championship. Ryan, great to catch up with you, buddy. Thank you so much for the time. Good to see you. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. I, uh, I've been excited for this all week, so I'm really looking forward to it. Well, we often start our guests off by having them describe to us what they feel was their signature moment. The thing that when they look back at their career on the field is most memorable to them. A fan could make a case it might be the last big league appearance for you with the Red Sox. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I mean, me too. I could feel that same exact way. I mean, to, to think that the last big league hitter I ever faced was a strikeout to end game one of the world series in which we won. I don't really know if it got any better than that. I mean, you dream of that as a kid and to have that be your final moment was, was pretty special to be able to shake David Ross's hand. And, um, and, uh, yeah, that, that that was just a a remarkable, you know, kind of a, a whole entire season to cap it all off with that. I, I'd have to agree. I, you know, I don't put personal achievements ahead of, uh, team achievements. So when you can collide them both together, it, it, it's kind of fitting. Take us through that moment and your mentality. Uh, you know, you're in a world series and you have to have a different mentality in that sense. What was yours like on that day? Yeah. Well, you know, pan back to a month before that, John Farrell called me in the office and he, he was really uneasy and he was having this meeting with me of like, Hey, um, so listen, Demp, uh, we got six starters. Um, and I just kind of cut him off. I was like, Oh, you want me to go to the bullpen? And he was like, uh, yeah, are you okay with that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, we're winning the world series and I'm just here to do that. I've already had experience in the bullpen. I closed for three years. So sure. Let's go. I said, but don't stick me down there and don't use me. I was like, I understand there's guys on the team that they're your guys. They've got us there. But like, if there's moments I want to be in the game. So, um, he used me a few times at the end of the season. And then, um, each playoff round, I got into a game, which was which was a lot of fun. And that game one of that World Series, you know, we're up 8 nothing. Um, we're winning. Fenway's just popping. Everybody's having a good time. You know, Sweet Caroline just played a couple, you know, a couple minutes ago. And all of a sudden, the phone rings. And, you know, here I am, 16 years into my career. You figure you don't get nervous. But this is my first World Series game. And it's like the adrenaline just started taking over and the anxiousness, the anxiety started taking over. Um, 
I wanted to get in there, got in there, um, proceeded to give up about a 700 foot home run to Matt holiday, (laughs) (laughs) which by the way, was so great. After that inning, I'm in the shower and Johnny Gomes is in the shower with me and we're sitting there and he looks over me and goes, Hey, look at this way, Dem. If you would have finished the world series with a zero or eight, zero ERA, nobody would have thought you had pitched. So, <laughs> It'll feel a good moment of the year point, for you. you know? I had to make it on the list, but, but then we calmed down. We got two outs. Then I gave up a hit. Um, uh, actually uh, that Victorino almost threw out, uh, Alan Craig at first base. I believe it was, it was Alan Craig. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was like, I looked over the dugout. I go, don't you start panicking. <laughs> don't you, it's two outs. It's eight, one. Don't even pick up that phone and start calling down there. I got this. I can hold an eight run lead, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then we, you know, got Matt Adams came up and I just remember, uh, David Ross going through the signs and he just kept pumping one, just one, number one, number one. And I was like, all right, here we go. And, and I got the strikeout to end the game. And it was just, what a, what a cool feeling knowing you're three games away, three wins away from winning a World Series. So, so yeah, you, you end up winning that World Series in 2013 with the Red Sox. Did you know at the time that was going to be the end of the line for you in the big leagues? I felt at the time, uh, at the All-Star break, um, me and uh, my now wife and Matt Thornton uh, were, Thornton were at the hotel bar or the uh, airport bar in Oakland at the All-Star break. And I was battling some real big neck issues. It was taking a lot for me to just make my way through the season. Um, I was going through, you know, a divorce. I was going through stuff. And um, I, I just, you know, I said to him, I said, we, when we win the World Series, I never said if. I said, when we win the World Series, I think this is going to be it for me. I'm going I'm to go home and be with my kids and, and do that. And uh, I've had an unbelievable career. And I just, I felt it in my bones that we were going to win. So I just knew it was a, an incredible way to go out. And, uh, and it turned out to be honestly the best thing that's ever happened. Demp, when you go through that, that moment and personally you're, you're in that world series, you've never achieved that. But then you said you're three wins away. Those three wins come. What was that like for you celebrating and knowing most likely this is going to be your last? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I celebrated hard. <laughs> Really, really hard. Um, it, it was incredible. I remember just waiting on the bullpen, you know, because Koji was dealing and he, that last pitch to Matt Carpenter, he strikes him out. And I, all I was trying to do was catch Victorino from right field to the dog pile. And, uh, and unfortunately, the flying pineapple is a little too fast for me, but um, I, I just booked it in there and jumped on the pile and just, it was euphoric. It really was because. I think more so because I knew that was going to probably be the end of the line and to kind of go through it all and, and, and celebrate and just, you know, I had my family there. My mom and dad were there. Um, my son was there earlier, not in that, at that game, but um, you know, my brothers were there, my best friend was there and we just got to just take it all in together. And um, it, it was incredibly, incredibly special. Uh, you, the unique celebration, it just keeps on snowballing, right? Uh, for our listeners, and I think this is interesting because the Boston Red Sox, when they win, they bring out the duck boats. What, what was that like for you? Who was on your duck boat? And, and uh, what was that celebration like? Yeah, it was, well, it was incredible. Well, and actually panned back before the duck boats. So after we celebrated, we went to the corner bar, which is in the left field corner. It's attached to the stadium. And we had a little area there and we, we all partied in there and celebrated, had the trophy with the fans, and our families and all this kind of stuff. Well, then we left. And it was like 3.45 in the morning 
And I walk out and the lights are on at the field and I got all my family with me and I'm like, let's go get a picture on the field. This would be great. So we're taking pictures on the field. And then I'm like, wait a second, I've got a better idea. And I walked over to John Henry, the owner of the team. And I go, Hey, John, he was like, Ryan, congratulations. And I was like, thanks, you know? And uh, I said, Hey, um, you're probably not going to want to stay for this. So I'd maybe leave and just claim pure negligence. You didn't know anything about it. And he's like, what? I go, I'm just telling you. And he goes, Oh, and he said, okay, Ryan, I'll see you later. Have a good night. And the <laughs> owner left. I went down in the tunnel, grabbed Pedroia's baseball bat and a bucket of balls. And I said, let's go, let's go fam. Come on. Mom, dad, aunts, uncles, everybody. I threw BP for about 45 minutes at four in the morning. It was, <laughs> it, it, was it was the most incredible experience. Michael Malley, uh, a local boy who's a uh, actor, writer, comedian, everything. He got in the box, started taking some wax. We were just having a blast. My brother's pepper in the green monster. It was just so, so cool to, to do that. And then, you know, just, they just kept going the next night and the celebrations and, you know, and then the duck boats and you're going around the city and, you know, everybody's just out. And especially given that year in 2013 with everything that went on at the start of the season, it was, it was a celebration uh, of city. Uh, me and Salty were on the same duck boat and this was the best part, dude. Not only were we on the duck boat together, we had the trophy. Wow. So like when we, when we got to the river, it passed around and now we got to the river and it's like, Oh yeah, we're keeping it. This ain't getting <laughs> you know, so now we're going down, you know, down the river and we're just showing everybody. And I'm like, man, don't drop it salty. My swimming skills are not very good right now. <laughs> and it was just so much fun to like, here we are just, it was, it was an incredible and incredible moment. I remember looking at my dad and, you know, we're from a small town in Gibson's British Columbia outside of Vancouver, 5,000 people. And he's like, there's two and a half million people here. This is absolutely just bananas. Like, what are we doing? And it was, it was so special to be able to share that with my family and, you know, to share that with one of my battery mates and have the trophy going around in a duck boat and then watching Jake Peavy buy one and take it home. <laughs> it was pretty, I remember when Peavy got traded to the team, walks in the clubhouse. I'm not kidding you, dude. Walks in, the door opens, and everybody say, hey, Jake Peavy's here. And Dustin Pedroia goes, you pick your duck boat out yet? No way. Yes, true story. And he sits down next to me and goes, hey, damn, what are they talking about, man? And I was like, well, you got to pick your duck boat out, dude. We're all picking our colors. You got to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> he took it to heart. He bought one instead. It was pretty cool. <laughs> That's remarkable. You know, to think that you get to the top of the food chain in, in a team sport uh, is extraordinary in that most guys obviously never even see an hour into big leagues, despite how they grow up dreaming about it. Let's spin the clock back to your beginning. Uh, drafted in 95 by the Rangers, you get flipped over to the Marlins and you get called up in 19. 98, 16 years before your duck boat story in the Boston Red Sox. So take us back to the moment you were called up, how you found out, who told you, and who you told. Um, okay, yeah, good good story. So I'm starting against the uh, the Mets AA team in Binghamton, New York. And I walk to the field from the hotel and just, you know, getting over there in my usual pregame routine and uh, walk in the clubhouse and my name is whited out on the bottom. Nobody said anything to me and it's whited out on the bottom. And uh, I'm like, man, that's weird. So I walk in the office and, uh, and Lynn Jones was the manager. I go, Jonesy, what's up with this? You know, and he's like, uh, you know, we know you're, you're getting called up. We just don't know where yet. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, meaning like, I'm joining AAA, but I don't know where that is. They don't know if I'm going to meet them on the road. 
So he's like, we'll have more information after the game. And so I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So now I'm like, you can chart tonight. So I'm sitting up in the stands and Britt Burns was our minor league pitching coordinator, left, former left-handed pitcher, rookie of the year for the White Sox. And Britt is very big presence, you know, and he's big, strong man. He's sitting next to me and I'm going to get something in between innings and I'm going to go grab a hot dog and a soda. And I look at him and I go, uh, can I get you anything? And he says, I don't know, I'll take a three quarter ton pickup if you got any extra cash lying around. And I was just like, what? Hmm, I'm, I'm out, now I'm getting a hot dog and a, and a Coke. And I'm like, what's he talking about? And then it starts going through my head. Cause there was like little subtleties, you know, like there was rumblings that they traded somebody. The, and I'm like, we didn't really have anybody in AAA. And I get back and he like looks over me with his smile and he shakes his head. He goes, that's right, son. And I go, I'm going to big leagues. He goes, yep. And so I just, I go, can somebody else see the child? I go call my parents and call my mom and dad. I go, I got called up. My dad's like to AAA. I go, no, to the big leagues. Dude, I got called up to the big leagues. And I'm like, a couple months ago, Jim Leland sent me down before minor league camp even started. Now I'm back in the show. This is awesome. So it was, uh, it was a pretty, you know, whirlwind of honestly a six week period from getting sent down and, you know, in spring training to six starts later, I'm in the big leagues. It was, it was pretty cool. Uh, anyone that knows you knows how important your family is. You've already alluded that. Uh, what was that phone call like with your dad? Uh, what did you say and, and how that all evolved taking us to that first appearance with the Marlins? Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it was one of those things where, you know, my mom and dad, I think were just so proud um, for me. You know, they saw all the hard work that I put in and the sacrifices I put in, not just, you know, from getting drafted and all that stuff, but in high school, like, I grew up in, a, like I said, a small town outside of Vancouver. So I had to take a ferry 40 minutes from Gibson's to West Vancouver and then a bus ride another 30 minutes to baseball. And I did that three days a week, junior, you know, sophomore, junior, senior years of high school. So all that sacrifice, they were just so happy for me and so proud of me. And I just like, you know, I wanted them there so bad. Unfortunately, my mom didn't fly at the time. So it was, it was hard because it was like, I want them there, but also too, I didn't know when I'd be pitching. And that was a big commitment. My dad worked, my brothers were in school, all these things. So we kind of planned something out where we could get them down. Um, my dad, I think did the old, uh, you know, uh, BA Baracus to my mom, you know, BA never flew on the A team. I think they had to slip something in her, in her cheeseburger to make sure. She was sweet. <laughs> and then, uh, and then they got, they ended up getting down, uh, later that summer and watched me start against the Cincinnati Reds. But, um, but my whole entire family, extended family, everybody, my uncle put uh, my cousin put a TV out on the front lawn and they just had a gigantic, uh, you know, first start viewing party for that very first start, but, uh, very, you know, to be able to support me, but I always knew that they were right there with me. And, and then as the years went on, they just, that became more and more prevalent and they were always around, which I was really lucky for. You were just 21 years old uh, when you got called up. That's a tough room to walk into because as you mentioned, Jim Leland, kind of the salty dog, right? Is your manager there who had just sent you down and Bobby Benilla's on the back end, Gary Sheffield's in there, Jim Reisenreich on that yeah. team. What was it like for you when you walk into that clubhouse? Yeah, it was the first guy I ever actually met, shook hands with because actually Bobby Bo had been traded to LA with Sheffield for Piazza. So I walk in, there's Mike Piazza, and I'm like, whoa, you know, I'm 21. Like, thank God I don't have to face this guy. He's on my team. This is great, you know? And then five days later, he got traded. But then it was like there was all these kind of veteran guys, and then those guys ended up getting traded. And, you know, to walk into the office of Jim Leland, who I, you know, I don't even know if he remembered me from spring training, 
you know, and he was just really great. He's like, glad to have you here. You know, go get your uniform. We'll use you when we can, you know, we're going to put you in the bullpen right away. And, um, it, it was a lot, you know, because I, the, the truth was I, I wasn't mentally ready and I was barely physically ready. I just was throwing the ball really well at the time. So it, it was tough. And, um, I just tried to learn as much as I can, you know, I was trying to have as much fun as I could, but at the same time, realizing I had a job to do, you know, it was really hard for Jim. He just won a world series. And now he had this, you know, roster full of rookies and, uh, and, and, and he did a lot. He did a lot to help me. He did a lot for all of us to push us in the right direction. Um, I'll tell this story. We're in Houston. <clears throat> now he just won the world series and now he's got this to take care of, right? All these young guys. And we're, we're losing 16 to four at the Astrodome to the, to the Astros 1998. They got a good team, obviously. And Eric Ludwig told a joke on the bench and we all laughed. And the way it worked out was if you're on the bench, I was like looking down at Eric this way and I laughed. Well, for anybody who knows Jim Leland, he always smoked cigarettes and he'd cup them in his hand right here, you know, he <laughs> away on the bench. Right. And he's looking down at the end of the dugout and he sees us laughing and he just chucks his cigarette down and he like went down the tunnel in, in Houston. And we're like, Oh boy. Oh dude, we're in trouble, man. We are in big, big trouble right now. Like I could just tell. And he, by the way, up until this point, he hasn't got mad at us. He hasn't said anything. He's just watched us lose game after game after game after game. Right. So now we're up in there. We end up losing 20 to four and we're up in the, in the clubhouse. And remember those old doors at the Astrodome, they, yeah. the cafeteria doors. Right. And Jim wore spikes, you know, cause he, he thought if we sucked enough, he just put himself in the game. <laughs> and you just hear this like, boom, the door comes in. If I ever see another one of you pitchers, Laughing when we're getting our asses kicked, I'll have you out of here so fast your head will spin. You think I'm messing around? You try me, boys. Guys up here with five and a half ERAs coming from double A thinking you're big leaguers. Well, I got news for you, folks. You're not a pimple on a big leaguer's ass with the exception of a few of you, and you know who you are. I ain't talking to you. I'm talking about all you guys who stink. You stink. Every last one of you guys suck. Walking around here, paying your big league dues, driving your fancy cars, wearing your nice new suit from Bricks Brothers, thinking you're a big leaguer. You guys aren't a pimple on a big leaguer's ass. And he just goes around, right? And then he'd stop and he'd go, guys, guys, listen, I'll lose. I'll go 0-162 one, oh, one with you, but not like that. We ain't going to be laughing. We're losing 16 to goddamn four. You got me? That's how it's going to be. And he laughed, right? And I was like, well, first of all, I know he's talking to me. So I'm like, that sucks, dude. Like, like you're the kid in class who got yelled at, but not directly yelled at, you know? And it's like, oh, man. And I go and I stand up, take my pants off, you know. And Jay Powell grabs me by the shoulder and he pushes me back down. He goes, hey, dude, he's coming back. And goes, what? <laughs> and another thing. Guys walking around here acting like you're big leaguers. Act like big leaguers. Go get somebody out for crying out loud. You think you're a big leaguer. And he went up and down us again. And then he'd, get, then he'd stop and he'd get super sentimental. Go, Guys, I want you to be good. But you, the fact is you're not. but you stink you know so he does this five times dude it goes on for like 45 minutes and we're just like in our locker like oh my god dude like i can't look at him i'm scared you know and he had the best line ever okay and he he ends it with this he goes i'm going to my office and i'm gonna smoke a cigar and have a whiskey and if i come back out here and there's anybody in this locker room i'm calling the cops and having you arrested for impersonating a major league baseball player (laughs) 
I, I swear half the dudes didn't shower. They were just gone. Like, I'll, I'll turn my uni in tomorrow. I'm out of here. It was so great. Man. Speaking, but you know. Speaking of changing the atmosphere, man, I, I mean, it almost reminds me of Tony Larusa because that's they were they were inseparable. They knew how when their moment came, they're changing the culture. They're changing the atmosphere. Um, whether it was Larusa flipping the spread after the game, uh, you knew that was an important event. So, uh, so funny to hear all of that. That changed everything. But what I really uh, would love to hear from you, Demp, is that you're a teammate guy. You're a team guy. You love those relationships. Who took you under their wing, and what did that mean for you moving forward? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I think. You know, with the Marlins, we were all so young. We were, I, I leaned on guys like John Wayner. Mm-hmm. Been there, you know, he was just a pro's pro. He showed up every day. Him and Council, even though Council was, you know, just a couple years older, he, they just had that, you try to watch those guys. Um, from a starting pitcher standpoint, um, you know, Alex Fernandez said a lot of really great things to me. You know, stuff like, you're not, a, you're, when you're reading the papers, you're never as good as they say you are, and you're never as bad as they say you are. So don't worry about that stuff. Um, that came in really handy because I thought I was really bad my first year. So, you know, it's, it's nice to know that, Um, you know, and then as my career went along, you know, getting to Cincinnati guys like Kent Merker, um, Merck was just such a good source of like allowing stuff. Once you leave that locker room to just put it behind you, you know, I think that's really, really important. Baseball is built on failure. You're going to fail all the time. The greatest ones in the world as a hitter fail 70% of the time and they go to the hall of fame. You know, and it's the same for pitchers. We fail a ton too. Um, and then, you know, life-changing, career-changing, getting to Chicago in 2004, being hurt and sitting my butt next to Greg Maddox every day on the bench. Hmm. I mean, that was like, hey, you're going to get paid to get a thesis in pitching. Yeah. And it, and it really was. I mean, my career ERA was, you know, I think 0.75 difference of a run difference after being with Greg Maddox. He just helped me so much in learning the game and studying the game and realizing that it's not just when you're out there pitching that you should be doing something. There's always a place to learn. I remember one time Greg Maddox sitting on the bench and telling me to watch the on deck guys that day. Like, wow. That's, that's next level. And I go yeah, it is. the next, next, you know, the guys on deck and he's like, you can see tendencies, like watch what they do. And if they go up and swing the first pitch, watch them their next time up. Did they do the same routine? If they do something different, maybe they're taking, you know, what do they do with like all those little things so that you take a peek over when you're, and it helps because you take a peek over and you're like, Oh, wait a sec. He's got the donut on the bed. He's swinging first pitch. He's really ready. Whereas he might be easing into something. And it was just little tiny things like that. Learning how to just approach it one pitch at a time. You know, we're only as good as the people around us that teach us these things. And, and I was lucky to be around him. Deb, you had 132 career wins. Do you remember your first one? Yeah, Boston Red Sox. Uh, maybe Derek Lowe versus Derek Lowe, I think. It might have been Pedro. Pedro or Derek Lowe. I want to say Pedro because it sounds a little bit better. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's pretty great, though, because like that's my first win in 1998, and it's interleague against the Red Sox. So it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It took a, a lot of hard work. I had you know, plenty of outings, you know, where it didn't go my way, like my first major league start. But um, that first win was was pretty special. Uh, Dump, do you remember your your rookie card and what that meant to you? Uh, did you collect them as a, as a youth or, or what was that moment for you? 
Yeah, for sure. I, I remember, um, you know, getting that, that 1995 Bowman, uh, and, uh, you know, I baby face, I got like no facial hair, um, you know, the serious, like arms behind me pose, which I le later learned that when you're doing the tops photo shoot, you just do any pose you want. It's a lot more fun. Um, but yeah, and getting those, collecting those, I think my dad's got hundreds of them. Uh, my dad has so many of my baseball cards. It's not even funny. It's like thousands upon thousands of them. He's collected every print plate, one of ones, one of this, one of that, but he's got a boatload of rookies and, you know, he'll always have me sign a bunch and give them to kids around town. And that's pretty cool, man. Like I collected baseball cards my whole life. So to have your own rookie card is that's, that's next level. That's pretty special stuff. You made a couple all-star teams in there. I imagine those cards are pretty impressive and important to your family as well. 2000, 2008. Uh, he's punched out the side in 2008. I'm going to assume that game resonates more than the other perhaps, but you tell us. Yeah, well, and and honestly, um, the backstory to that is is honestly just as fun. So I punched out the side in, in the 1998, uh, sorry, in the 2008 All-Star Game in Yankee Stadium, bottom of the ninth inning, after Mariano Rivera had just uh, pitched the top of the ninth. So it all set up well, right? Like Mariano's going to win the MVP. They're going to walk it off. It's all great. In the 2000 All-Star Game, I didn't pitch. I was a young guy, Bobby Cox. It was a close game. And this is why I love Bobby Cox. Real quick, I'm going to go down this road real quick. So I don't pitch. I walk all the way in at Turner Field. I, my whole family flew from Vancouver down to Atlanta. Mom, dad, brothers, best friend, his wife, my uncle. And I don't pitch. It's kind of hard to take, you know? It's like, because you, you, you think you're going to be back, but you really don't know. I had good years after that that I just didn't make All-Star teams. So now, but Bobby Cox is waiting down at the bottom of the steps for a 23-year-old kid for the Florida Marlins after we just lost the All-Star game. And he's waiting there and he goes to me, he goes, Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't get you in the game. I know you have your family here and, and I promise you, you'll get back to another game and you'll get in like, wow. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is special, special stuff, man. Like just an incredible, incredible man. And still to the, to that day, every time I'd see him afterwards would always be like, how's your mom? How's your dad? He was just, he's just so special anyways. So now I get to the 2008 all-star game, eight years later, and I pitch Sunday against the Giants. I throw like 110, 115 pitches. And I go to New York and I'm feeling good. You know, <laughs> game. here comes the same crew. The same exact crew flies from Vancouver to New York now. Walk into the office. I'm like, Clint, what's up, man? Clint Hurdle's our manager. He's like, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. You know, he's yelling at me. I'm like, why are you yelling at me? It's just me and you. And, and he's just like, listen, I can't pitch you. And I go, bull crap. And he goes, you just pitched on Sunday. Lou will shoot me if I pitch you. You guys, have, you know, you're in first place. I, I just can't do this. Ethically, I can't do this. I go, listen, I love Lou, but I don't care. I feel great. I just did seven miles in Central Park run this morning. Sweat those lactic acids out of my arm. I'm pitching in this All-Star game. And he says, no. I go, we'll see about that. So now I come in Tuesday for the home run derby go right into his office. I go, Hey, guess what? It's my side day. I'm not going to throw a bullpen though. Nope. I'm just going to be ready to pitch when you need me. And he's like, Brian, we can't pitch you. Do you not understand that you are not going to pitch? And I was like, this is a crock. I'm tired of this, whatever. And I walk out, you know, and I'm mad, but at the same time, I understand, but I'm mad. So now we're sitting there and I'm sitting down in the, in the bullpen. <clears throat> I haven't touched my toes since BP. 
Now I got to go to the bathroom. And I go to the bathroom and base hit ends up tying the game off Billy Wagner. Boom, boom, boom on the door. The bullpen coach of the Rockies. He's like, hey, uh, it's still tied. You're in. <laughs> what? What are you talking? Let me talk to Clint. He told me I'm not even pitching. What's going on here? So then I like, I'm like, okay. And I like start warming up. And Giovanni Soto, who was my catcher, had come down the bullpen. He pit, you know, caught six innings and he comes down to help the pitchers warm up. And, and I'm warming up and I'm awful. I mean, God awful to the point where he actually comes out to the mound. He stops and he's like, Hey dude, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Why? He goes, I don't know. You haven't thrown a strike in 25 pitches. And I'm like, I'm bouncing <laughs> balls and throwing stuff. I'm all over the place. Right. And I remember the doors opening up at Yankee stadium. It was just like lights were blaring, you know, and it's 55,000 people. And this thought, true story went through my head. <sighs> I just lost the all-star game. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went out there and I like Russell Martin's catch and he gets down a little crouch position. First one I darted. I'm like, Oh, okay. Throw my warmups. And I punch out the side. I walk off the field and Kerry Wood and Brian McCann are right there. And I'm like, well, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it was incredible. I'll never forget. That. Wait, no, 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 no. Don't go in there. Have you ever talked to your TV? He's right behind you. Yelled at your TV. Oh, stop. Stop. Alexa, pause. Well, now there's a TV that listens. Alexa, find movies about smart people. Okay. Introducing Amazon's first hands-free TV. The Dolby Vision screen looks great. And built-in Fire TV puts your content just a voice search away. The new Fire TV Omni-Series from Amazon. Ah, space documentaries. Yeah, but I think a lot of our <laughs> listeners don't understand. Uh, when you think of baseball, to me, it's fraternity. It's everyone somehow knows somebody and those relationships fester, uh, much like ours. We never were teammates, and I feel like we were. And the reason why, I'm going to go back to the offseason after the 2000 season. We're, we're asked to go to this charity golf trip in St. Croix, the Virgin Islands. I mean, who's not going to take that trip, right? Um, the late Dave Nelson, a nine-year big leaguer, coached, uh, was a broadcaster in the game. Unfortunately, we lost him in 2018 to liver cancer. But he was the guy that was the conduit to getting us to St. Croix. So he asked us if we could go down there and do this charity, not knowing what was going on with the charity and what it was all about. This was unbelievable. It, it was called Queen Louise Home for Children. It was a safe haven and foster care for children in the Virgin Islands who have been abused, abandoned, and neglected. And it, was, it, it tugged at your heartstrings. And that's the reason why I say it. It's one of those uh, little details that you get to do as a baseball player that you're just, you're just going out there and playing golf, but also the connection with those kids, uh, being around them. It was a fabulous week. And it started uh, knowing that the kids were being uh, taken care of. We were helping out uh, in our own way, either financially, also being around the kids. It was a great feeling. After the, the, the night, after your golf, you get to go out, you get to have dinner, you're, you're going to this casino that we have. And all of a sudden, I look at Kevin Millar, who's there with his wife, Gina, and he says, hey, uh, Demp's going to be at the casino 
for a while. So if you want to go back, we're going to head back if you want to, you want to go back. Now, I look over and you have a stack of chips. You're, you're not leaving, buddy. I mean, everything understands that. So we get back to the hotel. And for our listeners, we had adjoining rooms. But it's not a typical connecting door. We had that lock. We opened them up. I mean, we had, we had fun. We were enjoying it. So we get back and Kevin Millar goes, hey, I'm going to mess with Ryan. Do you want to help? And I go, yeah. Are you kidding me? It's right up my alley. I'm going to help. So he starts lathering your pillowcase with lotion. That's not fun. And I said, oh, I wonder what I can do. So I start putting the lotion on the telephone and called and said, hey, can you get a wake-up call uh, for an hour earlier? Um, so we start going through all of these aspects. Then Kevin goes, hey, I got another thing. He has these power bars that he loves to eat in the morning. That's the first thing he's going to eat. So in goes shaving cream into the box of power bars. And we keep on going all over this. And we don't think anything of it. We go to bed. We have to wake up early to go to the golf event. You guys and put it inside my toilet paper, by the way. <laughs> Remember that? And then you rolled it back up. Yeah. That must not have been me. Wipe afterwards, but yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that must not have been me. So uh, to further this, we get that early wake-up call. Uh, we're dragging because we had too many rum things that they were trying to experiment with down there. But we had an absolute blast. So the first wave of us going to uh, the golf course, me and Kevin are on there. Uh, no show on Ryan. Ryan's not in the first wave. So we get to the golf course with our group, and, and we're in the golf carts. We're getting ready. Here comes Ryan, and, and he looks right at me and Kevin. He says, oh, yeah, that was funny. That, that was really funny. That, that, was, that was enjoyable. I, I, the lotion, the, and he starts going through all those things, and he just walks by. He goes, that's, that's a blast. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the one thing that I really wanted early in the morning. So... The week evolves, and we just keep on snowballing. We're having a blast. And we get to the last day, and the last day is all of us together going up to the lobby and having this big, elaborate final dinner to say, man, what a week. This was unbelievable. Nothing happened. Um, so we start getting appetizers, and then all of a sudden we order the main course. And Kevin Millar says to me, he goes, uh, has anyone seen Ryan? And I said, no, he was just sitting here right a couple minutes ago. And Kevin Millar jumps out of the seat and we're in the lobby. So we have to run down this hill to our, our places where we were staying. And he starts running. I go, oh, I got I to gotta find this out. So I get down and to paint the picture of what happened, I walk into my room and Kevin goes, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I walk in my room. And to, to put in perspective, everything in my room was outside on the patio. And I said, what, what just happened? I mean, everything that you can think of, uh, the bed, the, the headboard, uh, the side table, the flowers on the side table, everything within my room, the couch, the chairs, the, the coffee table, everything was out on my patio exactly the way it was presented in the room. So all of a sudden, I look up, and I said, who did this? And I walk into the next room, and Ryan is on his bed with his hands behind his head, sweating like he just had a Bikram yoga class. And he says, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what went through your head thinking, 
of what I had to do to get back to these guys. I, I mean, I don't even know anyone that can think that way. Well, that, that's unfortunately it's a it's a a blessing and a curse at the same time. It's the minute that happened when you guys got me, my head went to okay. How do I get them? But it's got to be the long game. Like they're going to be, you know, head on a swivel for a few days. So I can't do that right now. And as I started going through things in my head, I'm like, it's got to have impact too. Cause it can't be the same thing. It's got to have more. You guys didn't have cars there. I couldn't do anything with that. You know, I don't want to mess with a man's golf clubs. You don't, everybody knows you don't do that. So it's like, what can I do? And then I started thinking about things and I'm like, man, this is a beautiful, beautiful room. It would look way more beautiful outside the room, you know? And so I remember when the appetizer, <laughs> ate the appetizer, and as soon as that order went in for the main course, I think I said something like, I got to go to the bathroom. You know, that, that really hit me hard, and I, and I just booked it. I booked it down there. And I knew I only had a window of so long before people would start questioning where I was. So at first was the bed, but the idea in my head, which I thought I did a pretty good job was I have to replicate. I can't just throw your stuff out of the room. What kind of prank is that? I wanted it to look exactly the same. I think that the phone was the toughest part because it was one of those hotel phones that I couldn't get off. I had to end up, I think I ended up having to screwdriver it off real quick. But oh the gosh. magazines were on the end table, just like they were, you know, the note of pen and paper and it's bed. <laughs> and I got to admit, Mike, it was, it was pretty sweet because I know it wasn't in his room anymore. And if had the humidity, humidity not been so bad, he probably would have been pretty comfortable with that view of the ocean. There. And it's, it's, it's frightening. Day, it was one of the best pranks I've ever done in my life. It was incredible. And I, and I remember that clear as day. I was going to say, I remember having my hands. What, what happened? It's frightening to me the level of effort you put into that when you're saying, well, I got to get a screwdriver. I better go down to the building maintenance people. I mean, you're like working this through like some international spy. Yes. Commitment to the cause. When you're going to go for something, if you're going to go that big, you got to do it right. And I think I even, to be honest with you, I remade the bed because when I was moving the bed out, <laughs> he did. it all came apart. And I'm like, I, I got to get the perfect hotel tuck under there. You know what I mean? <laughs> What did you do to Millar? Did you do anything to Millar? I've done enough to him over his life that, you know, um, I'm sure there's been a few things. I think I charged everything in my room to his room. <laughs> hey, you know, speaking of Millar, uh, there's a story that goes to that. Uh, everybody knows you for the glove wiggle. And I know you've addressed this before, but the story goes that Kevin Millar had a hand in that. Is that is that true? Was that something he passed along you? And for what reason? Give us the backstory on the on that uh, Ryan Dempster famous glove wiggle. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> he. This is really funny. So I I started throwing a split later on in my career, and really primarily when I started closing. Um, it started that year in two thousand five. Spring training. Fergie Jenkins was the one who who helped me out with it, and uh, and then I went to closing. So I was thrown out of the set position all the time as a closer. Well, then I got to Lou Pinella in 2008. It's like, you're going to start. I'm in pre-spring training and I'm throwing a bullpen. And I and imagine that I, I didn't have big enough hands to just dig in. So I dig in. And as I preset, every time I would come out of my split, my wrist would move. And Tyler Colvin, a young outfielder, was like, hey, dude, I can see when you're moving out of your split. I don't know if it's a fastball or slider, but I can see your wrist move. I'm like, oh, man, I never thought about that. 
So then I go, and Kevin had a place in Mesa where I was at too. And, and I'm over there one night and I'm like, dude, I'm tipping. And he goes, hey, Eric Bedard kind of does this little tiny movement with his glove. He's like, you should do something like that. So I started doing it, you know, and, and it just kind of became very natural and almost like a timing mechanism at some points. And hitters would be like, quit trying to mess with me. And it was never the reason. It was more to protect myself. Um, you know, and then, you know, I would get phone calls through the year from Kevin and be like, hey, Ryan, I know you had, we said a little glove wiggle, remember? Remember just a little one. You look like you have Tourette's of the glove now. So <laughs> we're going to have to fix that. And the, I think the best one, I, 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 uh, I made a comment about tipping and, and why I did it. And Aaron Boone texts me. He goes, uh, turns out we can still see you're tipping your pitches. And I was like, really? I was like, I, don't, I didn't think I'm tipping anywhere. He goes, yeah, every time you wiggle your glove, you're embarrassing your organization. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty funny yeah well you think of uh embarrassing organizations uh you need to have people behind you and you look at your your career and you had to figure out the starting relieving situation and with the chicago cubs and more or less theo epstein which i want to lump these together because you need to have someone that's backing you but also uh, and you had that in theo what was that like in that transition of, of just changing things up, of being a reliever, being a starter? And how did you embrace that, that uh, reliever role? Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. You know, um, it, w- it was one of those things where I just kind of always grew up like whatever's best for the team. Mm-hmm. I'm going to always look out for myself for sure. But I, I feel like if you, if you do what's right, it'll, it'll pay itself forward in, in some way. Um, and so when I was asked to go down and close, I was like, all right, cool. I'll close. Um, and it just started going really well. You know, and I sought out relievers. Like I went to Hoffy, you know, and I was like, Hey, what do you, what do you do? What is your pregame routine? I tried to let, you know, he's like, make sure you're getting your running in. You're going to be asked to warm up and throw every day. It's something new for you. So the preparation was a lot different lifting at night after games versus pregame. Like I would do as a starter and those kind of things. And then it just, it just started snowballing and, you know, my stuff was really good. I started throwing, you know, 94 to 96 sitting, you know, like as a starter, that wasn't me. I mean, I'd run it up there, but I was sitting there and, you know, pitches were crisp and I felt the more I threw, the better I was. Like, I remember throwing, getting uh, seven saves on a 10 day road trip. Wow. And finishing one in in San Francisco, the last save I threw 10 pitches, got three outs. And you tell me what, what part of the year of the date on that dime you wanted me to throw it. And I was hitting it there. I remember Tuesday I woke up and I couldn't lift my arm, but you know, <laughs> that, that whole stretch. And it was just, it, it, it felt good. And it was the more I threw the better off I was. Oh six, I struggled. We struggled as a team. Um, and then Oh seven closing again. I'll never forget. This is a great uh, story. Lou Pinella. So we're on, I just blown a save in New York, but I was, I was closing well. I was, you know, I was doing well. I was like, had a shot at maybe making the all-star team as a closer. I was throwing well in the first half and, I blew a save and he calls me up on the team plane. and He's like, son, you like pitching, don't you? I go, well, yeah, dude, I'm not going to hit. So I don't know what your plans are. He goes, no, no, no. You know what I mean? Like, like you're not a thrower. Closers are throwers. You're a pitcher. And I go, yeah, I love pitch. I go, Lou, I started from high school until two years ago, you know? And he's like, tell you what, you close for me this weekend against the White Sox. And then I'm going to put you in the rotation. And I was like, sweet. Like, this is what I wanted again. Awesome. Right. So I'm Jones and like, this is exciting. You know, I get a save against the white Sox. I'm like changing on Sunday. 
you know, and, and I go upstairs and, and, you know, Lou wants to talk to you. And I'm like, all right. And I walk in, there's Jim Hendry and Randy Bush, the assistant GM and the GM. And I'm like, Oh boy, this is something's up. And I'm like, I hope I'm not getting traded. We got a good team, you know? And he goes, son, son, listen, I messed up. I forgot. We don't have anybody to close if you do. If you don't. So, you know what? You got to go back. But next year, next year, I'll put you in the rotation. <laughs> and I go down to my locker and all these reporters are there. And I'm like, April Fools. I'm not, I'm not starting. I'm closing still. So, and then, and then, you know what? He was true to his word and he let me start. And then that, you know, went back to what I love doing so much. But yeah, it was, it was a fun ride. I'll tell you what though. I, I never again, you know, being a closer for the Cubs is like being a kicker for the Cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> you move 30 straight field goals you miss one from 52 yards and everybody's booing you and they want a new kicker so i know how that goes let's go over the relationship with theo because I, I i i'd like for you to elaborate on this uh there's also which we've seen and if anyone hasn't seen it uh you can go on youtube for this uh you threw bp to theo uh what was that like and, yeah. and what was your relationship you know what it was really great i knew him through kevin um, so I'd, I'd known him before previously, just, just very, you know, general. And then he came to the Cubs and we hit it off right away. Um, and then he had the daunting task of trading me. Um, and I was pretty, you know, stubborn about my preferences of what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, you know, uh, asked if I would take a trade to Atlanta. I just finished playing Oakmont and Pittsburgh. I said, I'm tired. I want to take a nap. I think about it. I woke up. Apparently I'd been traded to Atlanta, you know, and I called him. I go, what? You know, and he's like, dude, I, it wasn't me. I didn't say anything, you know. And I was like, well, I'm not, you know, you're not, I had 10 five rights. You're not going to take that away from me. He goes, I totally understand. And then it worked out the, you know, the transparency through it all. And then the trade to Texas and, and we just kept in touch. And he was like, Hey, you know, like, if you ever want to come back, we'd love to have you back. And then after the season in 2014, he brought me back and I just, I got, you know, we're, we are really close. We're, we're good friends and, and just got to watch and learn from, the honestly the best executive who's ever done it I, I in my opinion to be able to do what he's done in two different cities to break curses like that and you know and he's a nut man he's he's high intensity he he works tirelessly he's dedicated to always trying to be better the accountability that he takes you know as far as like even what he just did recently where he blames a lot of what he did and people that he worked with did as far as analytics and how the game changed, maybe not for the better, how he, how he can try and be a part of the solution. And, you know, he's, he's very, very smart. He's in touch with what the players want, you know, and he's a savant, man. He, his level of knowledge and incredible writing skills is, is nuts. And, you know, I always joke with him, you know, his, his dad's a successful, very, very successful person, you know, a professor, his uncle's a written screenplay, won Academy Awards, his sister's an accomplished writer. He's the black sheep of the family. All he does is, be really successful at fantasy baseball. So um, <laughs> he's, he's pretty brilliant and uh, you know, he's going to do great things with the commissioner's office. And he, he brought me back here and allowed me to be a part of the 2016, the whole run all together and, and feel a part of the family and feel like, uh, you know, I was a part of little things along the way. So yeah, we definitely have a very special bond. Would you have done that? Uh, gone to the front office, had it not been for your friendship with Theo, would you have looked for that kind of position somewhere else in the league? Okay, so. I honestly, uh, I, no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, possibly at the time, the emotions of Boston might have, but, you know, being that I played here for nine years, I felt like I was a Chicago Cub, even though 2013 in Boston was the greatest year I've ever been a part of. Um, you know, 
having that relationship and then having that relationship with him and how we, you know, I asked him, what do you want me to do? Like, I don't want to overstep any boundaries. I'm not the pitching coach. I'm not here to teach anybody anything, you know, that's my own. I want to be a part of helping. And he said, just be you because being you was good enough during your career and it will be good enough here and, and also help us sign John Lester. So. <laughs> oh, oh, in that. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Ryan, and when you start transforming uh, your, your, after you're done playing, um, you get into the front office, then broadcasting comes in. Uh, what was the thought process there? Because obviously our listeners understand you don't have the personality to be, able to bro- be a broadcaster. <laughs> I love, yeah. My, my love of baseball, like first and foremost, you know, I, I, as you know, Mark, and been around me, I, I love to be center stage. Um, but I, I love the game. I, I do. And I, and I felt like being at MLB network was such a great opportunity to, you know, to speak the game, be around other guys. You know, it was practically like being in a locker room um, again um, to be in a place with, you know, Kevin Millar and Mike Lowell and Cliff Floyd and all these guys that I was teammates with um, to, to be able to, you know, give the listeners out there, the viewers out there, an idea of what maybe a player is going through or adjustments that he might have to make in order to be successful things that we might see and the players themselves, like let's face it, guys watch, you know, highlights after the game and we're there. Yeah. We're there to maybe give some constructive criticism, but we do it with a good place and good intentions, right? It's comes from a place of how can we help this guy better? Um, How can we maybe throw something out there that he might hear that helps him and therefore helps our team. So um, yeah, it's, it's been a ton of fun and now doing, stuff with Marquee and doing it from a Cubs side and also the off the mound stuff, which is a ton of fun for me. I just, I love doing and, um, and, and look forward to, to doing that for years to come because you said it earlier when we were talking, no matter who you are, no matter what position you are, if you're the greatest player in the game, like when Ken Griffey Jr. Finished playing baseball, you know what they did? They just kept playing more baseball. The game just keeps going. It never stops for anyone. So those relationships and those, um, memories that you have that's what holds it all together and that's what's special and to me the bus rides the hotel rooms the dinners the moving a friend's bed and his nightstand out onto a lanai in st croix we're still talking about it 20 years later we're not talking about the at bat we had against each other you know those are the things that are everlasting and to me i want to keep that going because that's what's important yeah, you got a great balance. And, and, and you know, I'm not going to be sappy because, uh, you know, I love you. Uh, there's so many things that you can do that are the talent part of it. You have a seriousness, but you also have uh, a, a funny side to you. We've heard three impressions, three or four impressions already. Um, uh, Harry Carey comes to mind. Can you give us a little Harry Carey in, in your best uh, best line for that? Do I have any water in this cup? Actually, if it was Harry, it better be a bud. Um, you know, I think sometimes people will be like, he doesn't sound like Harry Carey. Sounds like, I get it. I get it. To emulate him, I think the best Harry Carey, uh, a friend, Dino uh, Giretti, he does probably the best Harry Carey. Um, uh, But the idea for me behind Harry was I always appreciated because growing up in Canada, we would get the occasional Cub game, you know? And I just appreciated the fact that he could be calling a game and, and just magically just throw in what happened. But meanwhile, telling something totally different. So the game was almost secondary to Harry's storytelling, you know? So you could be watching a game and he'd be like, 
Well, yeah, what a way here of the top half of the fourth inning. The Cubs are up three to two. Hey, I got to tell you, Pat, uh, you know, have you ever seen a, a, a Bob, a Bob's hardware store out there in Waukegan? Have you been by there? <laughs> it's a beautiful place. Grab ball over it in short. <laughs> on to first, two away. It's a beautiful place. They, um, they have some of the best deals. They're better, you know, with the small businesses are where you want to be. But Bob, Bob and Kathy have been running this place for 25 years. We just celebrated their son's bar mitzvah last Tuesday, fastball down and away, one and one. And I got to tell you, it's a special place because it's family feeling and family first. So that's what we are here in Chicago is, is family first. Pop up, short right field, Dunstan's under it. What is Dunstan doing? It, it, Rido didn't even move right there. Looks like, <laughs> looks like he's just not covering any ground. That ball fell in. That's gonna be that's gonna be a runner on first. But I gotta tell you, you gotta go down there sometime. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a hardware store, and I'm going on and on about it. But it's it's not your ordinary hardware store they're not ordinary people they're special just like the cub fans there's a ground ball to the third on the second there sandberg finally showed <laughs> up for a play three away comes three astros two we'll be right back after this <laughs> outstanding so that Out- that's what endeared me to harry was that right there and i just learned to love him and i learned like Dutchie, I've developed a great relationship with Dutchie um, ever since I got here to Chicago. And she is just such an amazing lady and just gives me so much information and stories about Harry. I love having a whiskey with her at 830 in the morning at Harry Carey's <laughs> telling stories. So I, I, I love doing it. And, and I just I, I think the world I wish I would have had some opportunity to drink some cold ones with the guy. Oh, that would have been uh, spectacular for all of us uh, because he was so great for the game. Um, unfortunately, we lost him. And, and, but those memories are what you have to keep alive. Well, and, um, two, and two, he could say things like, you know, that never you couldn't say on TV anymore. And that's what was beautiful. You know, like the time where they had the before the kiss cam, I mean, there was no jumbotron at Wrigley and they WGN just kept showing the couple, the, the kissing above the dugout, you know, and she was good looking. He's good looking. And, and they're calling the game, and Harry says to, to Ron, he goes, you know, or no, it's Steve Stone. He goes, hey, Stoney, I finally figured it out. And he kisses her on the strikes, and she kisses him on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. Oh, it's so beautiful. I don't want to leave without getting into this, because you, I know how important – uh, Canada is to you. And last year, uh, right about this time, uh, Larry Walker finds out he's going into the Hall of Fame. Another British Columbia guy. Uh, what was your impressions like? What was Larry Walker uh, for you? Yeah, well, first of all, somebody, you know, you say growing up. I mean, Larry's not a lot older. I mean, he's a lot older. But, <laughs> but you know, he was the guy, right? He was like Larry Walker is like a superstar from Canada, from Maple Ridge. Not far, you know, I'm playing at the same ballparks that he played at at times in tournaments so you had this admiration for him and then he was just doing incredible things obviously with the expos and then colorado and then getting a chance to face him and you know his first game against him he goes three for three off me with a homer to the opposite field no way to just welcome another canadian kid to colorado but thanks larry um but yeah i just 
had a ton of appreciation for him. And he, and he understood that I was Canadian the next day saying hi and getting to know him. And then over the years, you know, a, a small friendship kind of evolving and getting to know him and, um, and then wondering why he wasn't in the hall of fame, not understanding it. And, you know, because me personally, I, I look at the hall of fame on different levels. A yes, numbers for sure. The numbers have to be there. His numbers are there. You know, um, you can say Coors Field, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, to, to put up the numbers that he put up, to play the kind of defense that he did, to be the kind of base runner he did uh, was. And then the global impact that he had. So, like, you know, uh, Ken Griffey or Barry Bonds or whoever, Tony Gwynn, or, yes, they have global impact, but they impact players in the U.S. Larry changed the culture of an entire country in Canada. He made a us believe that we could be big leaguers through his performance on the field. Um, you know, I was too young to really know about Fergie. I found out later on and I knew, you know, a lot more about him, but Larry was the guy. So to me, it's like this guy changed the landscape of baseball internationally. And I felt like it was only a matter of time. So when he finally got in, it was incredible. And then to be at MLB network, when him and Derek came to the network, what a treat that was because now I'm there with this guy that I admire, a friend that I admired to watch him get inducted and to see him take all that recognition on, which he deserves so much was, was really, really cool. So um, I look forward to, to seeing that, you know, that speech that he gets to give that he hasn't been able to give yet because um, you know, of everything that happened, but just a, you know, an incredible, incredible moment. I've said to so many people, Demp, uh, he is uh, by far that five tool guy that w was the best in the game. And I think a lot of people are, are surprised when you're not talking about someone else. Larry Walker, to me, was the most talented player across the board because there was nothing he could not do. And he had to wait 10 years to find out he's in the Hall of Fame. So he deserves that. Uh, before we leave, uh, I, I want you to understand that I'm not going to minimize this. 2019, you get a great honor. The Canadian Hall of Fame uh, inducts you. What was that like and, and how'd that make you feel? Yeah, especially. I mean, when you start playing baseball, you play because you love it. Um, then you get at a certain point in your life, you play because you dream of being in the big leagues and winning the World Series. You don't play baseball dreaming you're going to be a Hall of Famer at any level, not even your own high school team. You just play because you love it. And then to get that call that you're going in with guys like Larry, Fergie Jenkins, you know, these these incredible people, and to go into a with a class like Gord Ash and, and Robbie Thompson and you know, um, and Jason, uh, Jason Bay was, was so special, man. It was, you know, you, you don't really realize it until I got there and I got to St. Mary's, you know, and got to Ontario and you're like, wow, man, like, you know, you see the people that are there back Fergie Jenkins, putting my jacket on and sitting and just really have an appreciation for me, you know, giving a speech, uh, you know, it summed up two things that hard work can get you, um, to some pretty special places in life you know, and how thankful I was for the support system I had throughout all the years, you know, parents, families, uh, friends that were, you know, there for me. And cause you don't do it by yourself. You never do, you know, coaches that helped you along the way. And, um, what a tremendous honor to be a kid from Canada who loved the game of baseball and played it for no other reason, um, to be inducted into the Canadian baseball hall of fame for the rest of my life, you know, to have my kids there with me. It was, it was just such an, an amazing honor. It's, it's incredibly humbling when you go through something like that. 
I think your humility clearly resonates. And I think one of the things that myself and, and a lot of our listeners find so cool is when guys like yourself and Mark and many of our guests uh, take an opportunity to play in the big leagues and pay it forward and give something back uh, to those who either supported them or to those people they think they can help. And you've always been very active uh, off the field with some of your charity endeavors. What do you have going on in the hopper now? Yeah, I, I mean, that's you're exactly right. I think we you know, I think it's part of your duty as a, you know, an athlete, we get grossly overpaid. Um, so if there's a way to give back money, great. If there's a way to give back your time, even better. Um, the difference you can make, uh, when I was 14 years old, I went to a Vancouver Canadians game and I sat in the bullpen behind Wayne Edwards and Don, don't call me Donnie Paul. And, uh, I wore them out, gave them cauliflower ear from how many questions I asked them. And they were so gracious with their time and it wasn't charity. Like I didn't, you know, that wasn't about charity work, but it was more the overall message that the impact you can make on young kids. And as you get older, you start to realize the impact that you can make on people who need it. They need those resources, you know, so we had the Dempster family foundation for a long time that gave back to many different causes, mostly being 22 Q, which is a partial deletion of your 22nd chromosome. Uh, it's the second most common, uh, syndrome in the world, birth defect syndrome in the world behind Down syndrome. A lot of people don't realize that or know that. It's roughly about a one in a thousand kids. Um, and my daughter has that. My 11-year-old daughter, Riley, has that uh, from birth. She'll have it for the rest of her life. And so to try and be able to help as many parents as we can. And at the end of the day, if you can just help one person, you're doing something special. Riley's helped so many people and so many families. And I always tell her that I said, you know, you've done more with your life in this short period than, than I'll ever do. And, you know, we continue to do the work with the 22 Q family foundation. People can check it out. You know, there's a lot of questions on there that can be answered. Um, you know, wondering what's going on with a child or a family relative or a friend, heart defects, birth defects, you know, lung, uh, lung abnormalities, breathing and swallowing issues, you know, and then wherever else I can, if that's a guy on the team, go to their event, you know, I throw my hand up for a paddle, you know, help give some money back, help be an MC for something. I love giving back. I, I think it's just so important because, you know, especially in today's world, there's so many people out there that need it. You know, not just people that are sick or dying. There's people that are, are struggling with their restaurant or their bar or their business, you know, uh, a school, whatever it is. And we don't realize sometimes the impact that we can make. And the more we surround ourselves and throw that out there and we bring people into that great web of, helping out, the more it just helps. And, you know, Vince Vaughn said it in a movie, people helping people, it's a beautiful thing. And, and it's the truth. And, and I try to live my life by that. Damp, I mentioned uh, earlier the, the fraternity and the, the common ground that so many of us that have played the game have been fortunate enough to play the game. Um, you build relationships and your network of relationships is uh, second to none. And, and I think it comes because of what our listeners just heard. It's the personality it's the balance. And this was a guy that when he took the ball, he took it for the right reasons. Um, this is the reason why when Barry Axelrod, myself, and Mike Pomerantz decided to do this project, it's for the listeners to understand they're real people. They're just fortunate enough to grab a baseball and throw it or hit it or do whatever you got to do. Um, I will always say this. Um, I wish I was your teammate, but I feel like I was. And that's the beauty of baseball. And I think that's what um, I'm fortunate to, to call you a friend. Um, I'm proud of you the way you did it. 
And I also know that when I hear Ryan Dempster talk, I'm going to laugh and I'm going to leave the room uh, better than I, I entered it. So I thank you very much for taking the time and, and uh, really enjoyed hearing your story. Oh, dude, it's so great to be with you guys. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a blast. Boy, Ryan Dempster, 16 years in the big leagues, nine with the Cubs, World Series champion. And you can catch him, folks. Be sure to do so on the Marquee Network covering Cubs baseball. He's got his own show. It's called Off the Mound. You got to check it out. And if we know Ryan, it's not the last media project he's going to be involved with. And for my money, by the way, the best Harry Carey impression I've heard at least today. So, Ryan, thanks a bunch, my friend, and we'll see you down the road. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.